This is John chapter 19, John's account of the last few moments of Jesus' life as he hung on the cross, starting in verse 28. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished, and to fulfill scripture he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It was the day of preparation, and the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath, and a very special Sabbath because it was Passover week. So they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering that their legs be broken. Then their bodies could be taken down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus, but when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water flowed out. This report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He speaks the truth so that you also may continue to believe. These things happened in fulfillment of the scriptures that say, not one of his bones will be broken, and they will look on the one they pierce. These ten verses highlighting the last moments of Jesus' death and the first moments afterwards are packed with meaning. There are a whole bunch of references to the Old Testament, references to prophecy, And there's several references to Passover rituals as well. Passover being the celebration of remembrance when Israel or the Hebrews were liberated from bondage in Egypt. It was celebrated every year at this time. For example, one of the regulations around Passover is as they uh, they prepared the Passover lamb, the sacrifice that represented that substitution that Pastor Peter talked about, the firstborn of Egypt was being judged but the Israelites would be saved through the substitution of the lamb. As they prepared this lamb, one of the rules was they weren't allowed to break any of the bones in the animal. And here, John makes it clear a couple of times. Jesus' bones were not broken. John is presenting Jesus as that perfect substitutionary sacrifice, that Passover lamb dying for us. Now, what, why this is mentioned, other, you know, the other reason this is mentioned is because it's common for crucifixion victims to have their legs broken as a means to hasten their death. And uh, here it it connects to another kind of obscure Jewish rule where if someone is hung on a tree or on a cross, they are not supposed to stay there over the Sabbath. So Jesus was crucified on Friday. By sundown on Friday, the Sabbath began, so the Jewish leaders wanted all the men on those three crosses to die first and be taken down before the Sabbath would start. And so they, they break the legs as a way to hasten the death. Now, death by crucifixion doesn't come from blood loss. It doesn't come from exposure. It comes from asphyxiation. That is, lack of oxygen. And what happens is a crucified victim is pinned to the cross with their hands and with their feet, and they hang there, Obviously, they're losing blood and they're dehydrated and they're exposed to the elements. But what happens is as you're hanging on the cross, you have to pull yourself up by your hands or push yourself up by your feet in order just to take a breath. If you've ever 
you know, held onto a tree branch or maybe a pull-up bar at a gym and actually fully let you, yourself relax, just hanging on with your grip and let your shoulders relax, you find a couple of things. One, it's very hard on your shoulders. And two, if you completely relax into that hang, you actually can't breathe properly. Your, your chest cavity can't fill up with air. Your lungs can't fill up with air, so you have shallow breaths. And so crucified victims would have hung for hours or days and slowly losing the strength to pull themselves up high enough to take full breaths. And so their breathing would get shallower and shallower until eventually they just didn't have enough oxygen to continue living. And so to hasten this, they would break the legs so that they couldn't use their legs anymore to hold themselves up. And very quickly, the end would come. There's a reason there was a new word developed to describe the pain of crucifixion. It's the word excruciating. It literally means of the cross. But I want to focus on a detail for just a short time today. In John's account, he very intentionally highlights it. And it actually has a connection if you've been with us over the last several weeks. Um, we've been doing a teaching series in Genesis. You'll see a connection to our texts in Genesis. Let me read again verse 31 to 35. The Jewish leaders asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering that their legs be broken, then their bodies could be taken down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water flowed out. This report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account because he, spe or he speaks the truth so that you also may continue to believe. So even though they didn't break Jesus' legs, there was a soldier, maybe he was a little bit excited in the moment or just wanted to make extra sure that Jesus was dead. He took his spear and he put it in Jesus' side and stabbed him. Likely he went under the ribs, up into the heart. And John tells us, as an eyewitness, that he saw blood and water flow out from Jesus' pierced heart. Now, there's medical reasons why this might happen, but John didn't include that fact merely for medical purposes, not just to prove to us that Jesus actually died on the cross. John included, I think, primarily for theological reasons, blood and water. Water is a major theme in the book of John, if you read through the whole book, and it has significant theological implications. It's mentioned, at least in the New Living Translation, it's mentioned 26 times in the book, the word itself, much more than any other gospel. Consider that Jesus' first miracle in John 2 was turning water into wine. In John 6, Jesus walks on water. In John 13, Jesus takes water and washes his disciples' feet. Then there's the famous story of Jesus meeting the woman at the well who went there every day in the heat of the day, avoiding public scrutiny to draw water from the well. And Jesus uses that image as a metaphor for a kind of thirst that only he can quench. He says this in John 4.14, Those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Consider one of his most famous public sermons in John 7, verse 37 to 38. Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. 
Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. Then John continues and gives commentary to say, what Jesus meant by this was that he was going to pour out his Holy Spirit on his followers. So water in John's gospel represents the Holy Spirit coming from Jesus. It's also referencing back to the prophet Ezekiel. So what is flowing in this moment of Jesus' death? What is flowing from his heart as he gets pierced with that spear? Sure, it's just blood and water, but John includes that to give a very theological, make a very theological point. Jesus is flowing with the life-giving living water. A life-giving spirit from Jesus is being poured out for you and for me. The life-giving water will satisfy our thirst forever and give us eternal life. You see, the gospel writers are trying to tell us that Jesus' death on the cross was so much more than the result of jealousy from the religious leaders at the time. It was more than just Roman power snuffing out what they perceived to be a subversive political movement. It was more than just another religious guru suffering for unpopular messages. In the ending of Jesus' life, he was pouring out eternal life for you. A power beyond comprehension was being released when Jesus died on the cross. A life-giving, thirst-quenching, soul-satisfying, world-changing power was being released into the world. To emphasize the point further, I mentioned that this was a, there, may, there was a connection to our Genesis series. And it's not a stretch because we know that John has very intentionally connected his gospel to the opening pages of the book of Genesis already. John's gospel starts with the same three words as the book of Genesis. In the beginning. Then John says, in the beginning was the word and that word spoke everything into existence. That word gave life to all things. Genesis 1 tells us that God spoke and things happened. There was nothingness and then God spoke and then there was life and light and matter and everything. That word speaks and brings creation into existence. John makes this connection to Genesis. But look at the connection there is between spirit and water. Genesis 1, 1 1-2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. With the same kind of immense power that God exerted in bringing life to the chaotic waters of pre-creation, God pours out that power through Jesus on the cross to give us life today. This connection between Spirit and water is very common through the whole Bible as I said, starting in the second verse of the scriptures. And John continues that theme through his whole gospel. Come to me and I will give you living water. I will give you the presence and the power of the life-giving Spirit of God. There's no living creature on this planet or any planet we know of that can't live without water. In fact, as soon as you get into a point of dehydration, you know it right away. Dry mouth and throat, tiredness, dizziness, confusion, muscle cramps. After just a few days without water, you will die. 
And people who are starved for water long enough will actually drink anything, even if it's polluted. And that's the picture of humanity in rebellion and isolation from God. We've been drinking polluted water, thinking it will give us life, but only God is the true source of life-giving water. We've gone after all kinds of other toxic water supplies that lead us into death. Jeremiah, speaking the words of God, laments this very issue. In chapter 2, verse 13 of his prophecy, he says, For my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. We've abandoned the source of life and tried to create our own sources to drink from. Jeremiah goes on to say, What good are the streams of the Nile? Why drink from the Euphrates River? These sources of water do not lead to life. They only bring death. You see, here's the amazing thing about Good Friday. Even while we were drinking from rivers that led to death, Jesus willingly and intentionally went into that death on our behalf in order to give us life. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His life was literally poured out of his heart so that it could be poured into yours. No wonder John reports that Jesus said from the cross, I'm thirsty. All his water, all his life was poured out for you. So drink. Jesus invites us to take a drink. Everyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. Drink from the living water, the only source that brings eternal life. The question then is how? Because John's digging into layers of metaphor here in biblical prophecy, and it's not as simple as just grabbing a cup and putting it under the tap and taking a drink like I would at home if I had a physical thirst. So how do I quench my spiritual thirst? Well, if you go back to John 7, where Jesus preaches that sermon about fountains of living water flowing from within you, he connects that metaphor to his invitation to believe in him. Drink the water I give. Believe in me, and you will have life. If you believe, fountains of living water will flow through you. So put it like this. To believe is to drink. To drink is to believe. This being John's gospel, maybe you've already thought of it. In John 3.16, he says, if anyone believes in me, they will have eternal life. In other words, if anyone drinks the water I give, they will have eternal life. To believe in Jesus, simply put, is this, to trust him with your life. In the same way, if you were in a deep, dark pit and someone dropped a rope down and said, grab on. You would grab onto that rope with every ounce of strength you have and hang on so that person could pull you out into the light of life and safety. We similarly need to grab onto Jesus with everything. I mean everything and hang on to him as he leads us to life. To believe in him is to throw your whole self behind him, leaving nothing out, holding nothing back, keeping nothing for yourself, 
To hold on to anything else as you hold on to Jesus is like grabbing to that rope with one hand, but tying your feet to the bottom of that pit. Jesus' salvation will not work for you. You must give everything in your belief to Jesus. To believe in Jesus is to trust that your sins are paid for and you are forgiven. To acknowledge that Jesus died for you on that cross as a substitution. But more than mere internal and intellectual commitments affirming historical facts, we must live our lives differently in light of our beliefs. Belief is a verb. It's an action word. I must act differently because of what I believe. More than that, I live differently as an act of belief. I treat people differently. I I must handle money differently, use power differently, handle offenses differently, organize my schedule differently. Every time I act out my belief in Jesus and what he did, I'm taking a drink and I'm receiving his life. I'm drinking in the life of Jesus he so generously poured out of his own heart on that cross on Good Friday and I'm being pulled out of the pit of death. So if your soul is thirsty in a way that no glass of water can ever quench, maybe you've been drinking from the wrong river. Maybe you've been trusting in your own wisdom. Maybe you've been trusting in your bank account or your retirement plan. Maybe you've been trusting in untrustworthy people who claim to be a savior. Maybe you've been trusting in pleasures and passions to satisfy. Maybe you've been trusting in the idea of, well, it'll get better soon if I just hang on a little while. You're just not living life to the fullness. You feel like your soul is dehydrated. Maybe you're drinking from the wrong river and you need to start believing in Jesus. Maybe for some today, believing in him for the first time. And maybe for others, renewing a commitment to believe in Jesus. Not just believe in him, but to believe Jesus. Believe what he says. Not just by agreeing with him, but by living differently because of your belief. And every time you do, you're taking a drink. So take a drink today. What act of belief is Jesus calling you to take in his name? Holding out a cup of water and invites you to drink deeply. The band's going to return and we're going to close our time together by taking the Lord's Supper, communion. If you're online, you can grab your elements now and be prepared to join us. But in a moment, if if you're unfamiliar with the way we do things here, I'll invite you to come up. And we've got three stations here at the front of the auditorium, but we also have two at the back for those in the balcony. Uh, You can grab those there. It's a little cup. It has a wafer on the top and some juice in it. And so we'll get you to grab those in a moment. Take them back to your seat and wait. But when we're invited into this, what what this is, it's a representation of Jesus' death. That substitution that he made on the cross. The fact that he died in our place in order to give us life. And so he tells us to do this regularly as a memorial meal, as a reminder, because we so easily forget. So on this Good Friday, on this remembrance of Jesus' death for us, it's so appropriate to take these symbols of that death and ponder and think and pray 
and process together. As we do, we're also invited to examine ourselves, to not take this meal uh, in, in a half-hearted fashion, but to look at our hearts, say, Jesus, is there any lack of trust? Is there any lack of belief? Have I been drinking from the wrong river lately? Take the opportunity to recommit yourself to believing in him, to drinking from the river of life that pours out of him and into you and through you. Let's pray. And once I finish praying, I want to invite you to come get your communion emblems as the band plays. Father in heaven, thank you. You sent your son Jesus as a substitute, a sacrifice for our sin, taking our place. Even while we were in sin, even while we were drinking from rivers of death, Jesus stepped into our place to take on that death upon himself and to literally pour out of his own heart his life so that we could have eternal life. Thank you for the gift of belief. And today we declare our belief in Jesus. Jesus, we trust you with everything. You have given us everything. And so we trust you with everything. Lead us, guide us, shape us, transform us, and pour out your Holy Spirit on us so that we can be made new. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Would you come and grab your communion stuff, head back to your seats, and just contemplate with the Lord as you wait.